The Lord's help, I'm going to be reading this morning from a portion of what was no doubt the most revolutionary sermon ever preached. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And I use the word revolutionary not in an attempt to be sensational, but to be accurate. The word revolutionary is defined as constituting or bringing about a major or fundamental change. Let me read that again. Constituting or bringing about a major or fundamental change. And that's exactly what Jesus was intending to do through his preaching and teaching in this particular sermon. His purpose was to bring about a fundamental change in the way people lived for God. You see, the Pharisees had so corrupted the teachings of the Old Testament and had, had lowered God's standards so dramatically that Jesus felt the need at the onset of his public ministry to raise the standard back up to where God intended for it to be. So with that, I'm going to ask you to join me this morning in Matthew chapter 5. First book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. A number of years ago, a preacher friend, a pastor friend who I'm friends with on Twitter raved about a book that he had just read titled Son of Hamas. So I downloaded a digital copy, a copy of that book. It was written by Masab Hassan Youssef. Youssef grew up as a Muslim from an early age. He studied the Quran, he memorized its teachings, he said the daily prayers, and he followed the way of Islam as faithfully as he could. And in that respect, he was like many other young men growing up in Palestinian towns in the West Bank, with one exception. His father was one of the founders of Hamas, the militant terrorist organization. Now you wouldn't think, or at least I wouldn't think, that he would be a likely candidate for salvation. But here's what we know about God. His ways are beyond human explanation. In his book, Yusef tells how he met a man who gave him a New Testament. And because of his interest in religious matters, he decided to read it. And obviously, he would have begun, he would have started with the Gospel of Matthew. So it wouldn't have taken him but just a little while to encounter the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there he got his first unfiltered exposure to the pure teachings of Christ. It blew him away. So let's take just a moment this morning to read some of what he read. Beginning in verse 43, Matthew chapter 5, here's some of what he would have read. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain to the just and on the unjust for if ye love them which love you what reward have ye do not even the publicans the same and if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. One of the statements that he read was that phrase in verse 44, Love your enemies. I was thunderstruck, he said. This was the message that he had been looking for. And soon, he became a Christian. Three words so captured his heart that he simply could not Get away from them. Love your enemies. Don't hate them. Don't despise them. Don't kill them. Love them. You have said all other religions say, love your friends or love your neighbor. But only Jesus says, love your enemies. I think you would agree with me this morning, this may be the most difficult command that Jesus ever gave. I mean, let's be real. If you have an honest-to-goodness enemy, I'm talking about someone who, who, who despises you, somebody who hates your gut. Maybe, maybe you've got a so-called friend or some so-called friends who've attacked you. Or maybe it would be somebody who's hurt your loved ones or maybe one of your friends. Then let's be honest this morning. Come on. Loving them may not. No, scratch that. Scratch that. Loving them is not at the top of your list. 
Just want to make sure I'm preaching to the right crowd today. There are a lot of other things that we would rather do to our enemies. Like get even. We would love to make them hurt and suffer like they've made us hurt and suffer. But in our text, Jesus calls us to love them, which may very well be the hardest love of all. As we delve into what is going to be a text that is as hard for me to preach as it is for you to receive, we see, first of all, a misrepresentation. If we were to take the time to consider the verses prior to our text, we would not be the least bit surprised at how the scribes and Pharisees had taken the words of God in the Old Testament and had misrepresented them to the people. For example, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 reads like this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now you read what I read this morning. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had conveniently omitted the fact that they were to love their neighbors as they loved themselves. And the fact that we love ourselves is no secret. Paul mentions that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves is to love them with the greatest of care. It is to show them the highest degree of love humanly possible. Listen, the meaning of this verse is changed considerably when we omit that part of it, that we are to love them as we love ourselves. But not only had they conveniently left something out of what God had previously stated, but they also added something to it. You see, nowhere in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, or in all of the Bible for that matter, will you find the words, hate your enemy. It's not in there, anywhere. God never tells us to hate our enemy. So that was clearly a rabbinical addition, and it was never intended to be there by the Lord. So when the scribes and Pharisees, what they had done was conveniently twist the scriptures to justify their own sinful, prejudicial behavior. You with me? I mean, even a casual look at the scriptures will prove that the thought of hating one's enemy is totally foreign to the Lord's teaching. For example, Exodus chapter 23, If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. 
If thou see the ass uh, of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Consider also Proverbs chapter 24. Solomon said, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. And then he said this, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. Now, would you agree with me this morning that those verses certainly do not support hating our enemies? The error of the Jews was their misunderstanding of the word neighbor. A misunderstanding that Jesus cleared up over in Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the the good Samaritan. The Jews had restricted the word neighbor to friends or to those closely related to them. To the Jews, a neighbor was someone of their own nation and particularly those who belonged to their own party. But the meaning of the word neighbor should have been very clear to the Jews because of its usage in the Old Testament. And no doubt it was clear, but they didn't like what it said. And so again, they conveniently twisted it and changed it to fit the way they wanted to live. Because in the Old Testament, the common usage uh, uh, of the word neighbor was to refer to anyone with whom you had contact. When the Lord gave the command, for example to not bear false witness against one's neighbor. And when he tells us there in Exodus chapter 20 that we are not to covet our neighbor's wife, clearly he was not just talking about the guy next door. He was talking about all of mankind. All people, they're our neighbors. So there was some Serious misrepresentation on the part of the scribes and Pharisees as to what they were teaching to be truth. Jesus said, I know this is what you've heard, and I know that this is what you've been taught, but here's the truth. And so Jesus gives some clarification. And there's no doubt in my mind but that Jesus had definitely raised a few eyebrows already up to this point. If you go back and begin at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 25, you're going to know right off the bat, wow, Jesus, he's, he's got to be raising a few eyebrows. But I'm telling you this morning, when he got to these words about loving your enemy, wow, he must have absolutely shocked the entire crowd including his own disciples. The clarification that Jesus gave on that day had to be the most radical thing that these people had ever heard. I mean, seriously, and I texted Brother Tyler this week, and I said, I think you and I ought to team up and preach a series of messages that we'll title, Seriously, Jesus? And we'll tackle passages of Scripture just like this. Because when we read this, we think to ourselves, 
Are you serious? Love your enemy? Bless them that curse you? Do good to them that hate you? Pray for them which despitefully use you? Seriously, Jesus? But the teaching of Jesus here was intended to show that our neighbors, listen now, our neighbors include even our enemies. In other words, no one should be outside of the scope of our love because no one is outside the scope of God's love. And church, I meant what I told you all ago. But this message is as hard for me to preach this morning as it probably is for you to receive. God and I have wrestled a lot over this passage this morning. The hard love that Jesus spoke of that day when he preached this sermon is ideal, it's indicative, and it's impartial. For example, example, it's ideal in this way. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen, the hardest love of all, the love that we're talking about this morning, is vastly superior in every way to what we normally call natural affection we call it love but it's really just natural affection natural affection is an instinct or a feeling that is found really even in the most wicked of people i mean you take the most evil wicked mean bad nasty person you know and they still have some natural affection for their mama And they still have some natural affection for some people who are close to them in their lives. Maybe their grandmother, maybe their grandfather, or or maybe a friend that they grew up with. Listen, listen, even animals have natural affection. My dog loves me. Am I telling the truth? She loves Papa. She does. And you're thinking, preacher, you just lost your mind. I used to think that about people too. But I changed my mind. My dog loves me. She has natural affection for me. The love we are to demonstrate, listen, toward our enemies is the same kind of love that God demonstrated toward his. For God so loved the world. You understand that that would include even those who hated him and despised him. I'm talking about people who literally, not figuratively, but literally spit in his face. Who beat him nearly to death. Who mocked him. And ridiculed him and shamed him publicly. For God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love that we are to demonstrate is a love Oh, mercy. A love that seeks the highest welfare of another. And according to Jesus, we can do that when we love those who are our enemies. And listen, let's make sure we understand what love is about this morning. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's an action. I just don't feel like it. That is not the point. I don't either. We're not talking about a a, a warm, fuzzy feeling towards someone. We're talking about action. Love is an action. When we love our enemies in the way we are commanded to, it is a direct, listen, a direct act of our will. That means we do it because we choose to. We also seek the highest welfare of others when we bless those who curse us. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. When we return cursing for cursing, then we have stooped to a level far below that which God speaks of here. We are living on a level of spirituality or, or excuse me, we are to live on a level of spirituality that makes it possible for us to curse those who curse us. And I thought about that a lot this week. Well, how can, how can I bless someone who curses me? And then God gave me this thought, well, Bill, why don't you Ask God to do for them what you're asking God to do for you. And then God took me back in my life personally to a situation where I came to the reality that if I was going to get past this, and if I was going to move on, and if I was going to, to be effective in the ministry and in the pulpit and not harbor bitterness in my heart, that I had to have a change of heart. You know what I did? Honestly. And God reminded me of this this week. I began to pray for some certain people. And here's what I remember. I remember asking God to do this. Because I wanted God to do this for my kids. God, keep their kids safe. Keep their their kids from the world. And I asked him to, to do some other things for them. I'm not, listen, I'm not lifting myself up this morning as a some prime example. I've already told you, I've wrestled with this in my own soul all week. 
Because I don't know necessarily right now that I, I have some enemies who've hurt me, but I have some who've hurt some people I love. And some people that are dear friends to me. And this is hard. Because my natural inclination is not to do what I'm, we're told to do in this service. But I know as a spiritual leader, I've got to set a better example. And so I'm just appealing to you this morning as an imperfect man who needs the help of God. And then Jesus talks about doing good to those who hate us. Paul also said this in Romans 12, Be not overcome with evil of evil, but overcome evil with good. We talked about Hamas in the introduction. And if one thing we learn from them, hate is a powerful force. Someone once said that hate is like acid. It can damage the vessel in which it's stored as well as destroy the object on which it's poured. People can hate you for various reasons. They can hate you because they're jealous of you. That was the case in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. The Bible says this, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his, uh, of his brethren, they hated him. Why? Because they were jealous of, of, of their father's affection for him. and They could not speak peaceably unto him. People can hate you because they're jealous of you. They can hate you because some kind of prejudice. I mean, Hitler's hatred of the Jews was because of his intense prejudice toward them. They can hate you because you choose to live for the Lord. The fact is, there are some hate-filled people in this world. And their hatred may be aimed at you, or they may be aimed at me, or they may be aimed at someone we love. But regardless, church, Jesus calls us to a high standard of love. And as if loving and blessing and doing good to our enemies is not enough, Jesus tells us to pray for them. Again, I love the name of that series. Seriously, Jesus? He calls us to pray for them. We are to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. Now stay with me. To despitefully use us means to insult or slander or falsely accuse. To persecute literally means to pursue. So when Jesus combined the two phrases, he said that we are to love those who purposely seek to destroy us with slanderous words and false accusations. If we're going to seek to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, then we're going to seek to love in the ideal way that is laid out by Jesus in verse 44. 
But this love is not only an ideal love, it's also an indicative love. Jesus said in verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now the Lord's words here are not to be construed as, as meaning that we are saved as a result of doing good uh, uh, toward our enemies. The word do does not suggest become. The truth taught here is that by manifesting ideal love, the ideal hard love that Jesus talked about, that we are showing ourselves to be children of God. And then look at the close of verse 45 where we're taught that the hardest love of all is an impartial love. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen, there are people who are nothing but evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty who get just as much rain for their crops as do those who are holy and righteous and godly. Why is that? It's because God does not deal with them according to what they are or according to what they've done to him. He loves them in spite of what they are and what they've done to him. By the same token, our love for others is not to be governed by what they are or by what they've done to us. We are to love them in spite of who they are and in spite of what they've done to us. Then Jesus makes an interesting point in verse 46. He said, listen, you've not done anything extraordinary by loving those who love us or greeting those who greet you. He says, even the lost do that. Even the publicans do that. What is extraordinary, though, is learning to love impartially like Jesus did. Now allow me to say this, and I'll hasten to a close today. Because I know what you're thinking. Preacher, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I just cannot do that. And my answer to you this morning is this. You are right. You're right. So let's just high five. You're right, you can. The hard love that Jesus is calling us to is not natural. It is supernatural. Let me say that again. The hard love that we're being called to in this sermon is not natural. It's supernatural. That means it doesn't come from us. It's got to come from Him. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. This Ideal, indicative, impartial love is totally 
and completely a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Without His help, we can not do this. I can't. I just be that honest with you? I can't. But God can. And God has at one point in my life. And He can do it again. So we've seen the religious leaders misrepresentation of the truth and we've seen Jesus's clarification so let's wrap it up with this this morning let's talk about the Bible's expectation Jesus closes out this section he said this be ye therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect the word perfect there means complete carries the idea of growth and maturity and and coming of full age. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to our enemies, we, and I use that word we intentionally, here's what Jesus is saying to all of us, we need to grow up. That's what he's saying. We need to grow up. Jesus wants us to be so mature in our faith that we can love even our most bitter enemies. You say, well, preacher, I'm not there. I get it. That's why it's called, called spiritual growth. That's why it's a matter of becoming more like our Heavenly Father. We're not there, but we can get there. If we're struggling in, in this area of our Christian life this morning, we need to give some consideration to our level of spiritual maturity. One of my favorite authors, Max Licato, in one of his books he writes about this big muscle-bound guy named Daniel who at one point in his life was cheated by his own brother. And Daniel vowed after that, that if he ever saw him again, that he was going to break his neck. And a few months later, Daniel got saved. Even so, he couldn't forgive his brother. And one day, the inevitable encounter took place on a busy street. And this is how Daniel described what happened. I saw him, but he didn't see me. He said, I felt my fist clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into his face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him, he said, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. 
I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. The brother found himself wrapped in Daniel's big arms, but not by the neck, but in a hug. Daniel said the two of them stood in the middle of that river of people and just wept. I think Daniel's words bear repeating. When I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. Here's some breaking news this morning. Every human being living is created in the image and the likeness of God the Father. And regardless of who they are or what they've done, they are our neighbor. I said they are our neighbor. And we are commanded to love them. I was not so naive this week to think that this message was going to change you instantly. I knew better than that. But my hope was that it would at least convict you a little bit. My hope was that it would convict you to the point you would at least be willing to take the step to admit, God, I've been wrong in my attitude and in my spirit and honestly in my hatred toward whoever and my hope this morning is that you would be willing to begin taking steps of obedience even if they're baby steps even if it's nothing more than lifting their name up in prayer that you would begin taking the steps today to practicing the hardest love of all. Maybe you should come this morning and pray something like this. Lord, I hate, and call them by name. Lord, I hate this person. But you know that already. And I ask you to love them through me. Because I can't do it in my own power. God, I ask you for a love that I do not have and that I cannot even begin to produce. 